You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the case of Mary Reeser. Hello and welcome back to Mysteries Still Unsolved. I hope you've had a great week. A lot of positive feedback about last week's episode. That makes me so thrilled like a happy mom. (laughs) You guys seem to really like my mom. I agree. She's super funny. I mean, she's also like legit crazy, but she's pretty funny. (laughs) If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, you totally should. We cover three unsolved mysteries all related to the infamous Bermuda Triangle. We came up with it with like so many inside jokes in last week's episode, even inspiring me to potentially sell merch. Huh? purple underwear anyone (laughs) if you want to understand that reference and be one of the cool kids go listen to that episode right after this one last week's episode was kind of long it just kind of happens when you have two hosts so to offset that this week is going to be a little bit on the shorter side i know from polls that we've done in the past on our instagram account at mystery still unsolved shameless plug that you guys prefer a podcast episode somewhere between the 30 to 50 minute range so this is probably going to be more along those lines maybe even a little bit shorter who knows i don't even know until i hit that end recording button But that's what I'm aiming towards anyways. (laughs) No updates on any of the cases that we've covered here on this podcast. But I do have an update that was brought to my attention by one of my BFFs. Shout out to Kate. You know who you are. On a case that is pretty close to myself personally. Well, not personally, but like to me. So every town or city has their local creeper, their local murderer, their local rapist. And when I was in the eighth or the ninth grade, um, the case of John Jamelski um, was in the news a lot. So if you don't know who John Jamelski is, um, he is a serial rapist who kidnapped five women and girls and imprisoned them in a dungeon underneath his home. So, John Jamelski, his case is super famous, like nationwide, maybe even worldwide. I remember watching a Criminal Minds episode where they talked about him, where they kind of like based an episode on what he did um so they talk about him quite frequently in like true crime shows if you're into like csi miami forensic file or not forensic files but like uh svu like that kind of stuff they talk about they they reference him a lot um so apparently um he's 85 years old now which i honestly was shocked that he was even alive because when this happened he was pretty old so i was shocked to even find out that he was alive but um, he was charged to 18 years to life back in like 2008, 2009, and he was eligible for parole recently. And so he sat in front of the board and they heard his case and guys, 
what my friend Kate told me and what I've read on my own just makes me feel sick. So basically he was trying to like convince the parole board that what he did like wasn't even that bad because the girls knew that they could leave if they wanted to and that you know they had their own space they were able to take bubble baths he was like trying to like play it off like he was providing like spa services to this women these women and that they had the ability to leave whenever they wanted to not true i remember when this came out um And there have been documentaries about it since. And I've seen the videos of like where he kept these women. It is disgusting. The way that he's trying to like play this off like it's like a spa is absolutely ridiculous. It like literally, it was like cement floor, a bucket to go to the bathroom, a wooden pallet for a bed. There were like people, like people, the girls would like write messages on the walls like talking about like if I die here like please contact so-and-so Francesca was here 2002 like people would not write that if they had the ability to leave so he's literally just full of crap um if you want to like learn more about him um I mean there's so you can go to his wikipedia page there's documentaries about it like literally it's just gross because his jail cell that he's in right now is like a hundred times nicer than the place that he forces these women to be. So I just am like disgusted that he would try and like um, downplay what he did. It's making me really angry. I'm like fuming right now. Um, Yeah. So I probably should stop talking about it before I like legit freak out. So um, let's go on to something a little bit happier. So before I forget, um, I was talking about merch a little bit earlier. And if and when I'm able to make that possible, I'm going to look into the logistics of it. Um, You guys will be obviously be the first person to know. Um, I'll probably post it on the website. So if you haven't checked out my website and if you didn't even know I have a website I have one now it's live so you can go to it um it's www.mysterystillunsolved.com uh for now though um you can go there and you can visit the website to listen to all of the episodes it's like from episode one to this one episode 31 I can't believe we're already at 31 episodes um and I am slowly but surely converting all of my episodes into a blog format I'm basically like transcribing all of the episodes um, for you guys so that you guys can see my notes that I use during the recording of the episodes. Um, So far, I only have two up, um, but it's just kind of fun to see a little bit of behind the scenes, if you will. The case I have prepared for you today is Mysteriously Bizarre, and we'll be talking about something that we've never spoken about on this podcast before. Are you intrigued yet? Because you should be. I won't let your minds wander for too long because I'm really just so ready to roll up my sleeves and get into this case. So without further ado, let's get started. 
Mary Hardy Reeser, a 67-year-old widow, moved to St. Petersburg, Florida from Columbia, Pennsylvania after the passing of her husband. Her children and grandchildren lived in St. Petersburg, and so she wanted to be closer to them. Her son, like his father, was a prominent physician in the St. Petersburg area. Mary lived in a fairly new furnished apartment located at 1200 Cherry Street in the exclusive northeast section of St. Petersburg. Uh, Mary lived in apartment number one, which was the left corner apartment of the complex, if you are looking at a picture of it. Um, each apartment had a living a living room, an electric kitchen, a twin bedroom, um, tiled bath, and even like a little garage. So to me, it kind of seems like it's more of like a condo than an apartment, but they call it apartments. As, um, as a matter of fact, the place where she lived is called the Alamanda Apartment. Um, but there was only five apartments in the building and there was even one hotel room. Mary and her landlady were the only two who permanently resided in the building at the time of this event. I'm not going to give it away yet. Um, but every once in a while, somebody would come and stay in the hotel room. On July 2nd, 1951 in St. Petersburg, Florida, Mary Reeser was visited by her adult son, Dr. Richard Reeser, at her apartment. Mary disclosed to her son that she had taken two Secanol tablets, which is a drug commonly used to sedate patients before surgery. It's defined as a mild sedative. Apparently, she told her son that she might even take two more before she went to bed, which seems like a lot of sedation for a little old lady. Am I right? Also, it was later determined that Mary did not even have a prescription for these pills. So why was she taking so many and how did she even have access to them? My assumption, I don't have anything to back it up, but my assumption is that maybe her son, the doctor, gave them to her. But it's still unclear at this point why he would have gotten them for her and like why she was taking them. At this point, I'm already considering Dr. Richard Reeser as a person of interest. I mean, seems like he's feeding her sedatives like Werther's Originals. And well, uh, more on this later. I so badly want to get ahead of myself, but in terms of the story, I don't want to ruin it for you, so I won't. Moving on, later that night, Mary would sit in her favorite chair for the last time. As Mary would become the unfortunate victim of that what first seemed like a house fire. The following morning, Mary's landlady, Pansy Carpenter, and the name suits her. It's a dumb name, but it suits her, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, Pansy would note that she smelled smoke around 5 a.m. However, she would not report the smoke until 8 a.m., which, hello, landlady, you are on my list too. Everybody's on my list today. I mean, I get it. They lived in an apartment complex. So, I mean, maybe there's a lot of people cooking at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I don't know. Or doing their various things. So, I don't know. Maybe if you're living in an apartment complex and you're living with like a bunch of people around, you don't want to assume the worst right off the bat. But we know that Pansy Carpenter Mary Reeser and like a family staying in the hotel room were the only ones in the building at the time. So if I'm pansy and I know that my only permanent resident 
my permanent tenant, is like a little old frail woman who's living alone, I'd like to think that I'd have the foresight to check on her and make sure she's all right. I mean, we need to take care of our elderly. They're precious. And yeah, maybe I don't want to freak out right away, but if the smell of smoke continued for an hour or more, don't you think she'd at least investigate? Why did she wait three hours? I mean, old lady tenant aside, as a landlady, the property ma- property manager, the person responsible for not only the safety of your tenants, but to protect your own bottom line, I mean, she makes money from this property, I'm assuming, to figure out the source for this fiery, smoky smell seems like it'd be pretty high on the priority list. Am I crazy in thinking this? Am I the only one thinking this? I just feel like it's common sense. So either Pansy was involved or she was just a really crappy, ditzy landlady. But those are just my two cents. All I'm saying is I wouldn't trust her to be my landlady. (laughs) Okay, so the reason the landlady even discovered the supposed fire was that she was on her way to deliver a telegram to Mary when she discovered a trail of soot in the hallway leading to Mary's apartment door. And now what I really want to know is, What did that telegram say and who was it from? Could that possibly hold a clue? Because, I don't know, maybe it's because I didn't really grow up in a world of telegrams, but ADM seems pretty freaking early for one, don't you think? But at the same time, maybe not. I mean, it was kind of like the text messages of their day, but still. I'm not going to respond to a text message at 8 a.m., let alone a telegram. So... This airheaded landlady notices this trail of soot leading to Mary's apartment and like an idiot, she reaches for the door handle and burns her hand on it. Like, hello, didn't you ever watch The Office where you have to like tap it first, make sure it's not hot? She needs to watch that episode. But also, I think that's kind of interesting because it doesn't mention whether Pansy attempted to knock or ring the doorbell. It seems like she just attempts to let herself in. So... I don't know. This landlady has a weird approach. On one hand, she'll ignore the smell of smoke for three hours and literally need to be led to the fire by a trail of soot and ash. And then on the other hand, she just tries to enter Mary's property like she owns the place. Her landlady methodology seems a bit askew, to say the least. After discovering the door handle to be too hot, she enlisted the help of nearby painters to help her get into Mary's apartment. What they found upon opening Mary's door would not only horrify them, but perplex the entire Tampa Bay area for decades. Inside the apartment, they found the cremated remains of Mary Reeser. Mary's skull had reportedly shrunk to the size of a coffee mug, and one of her feet from the ankle down rested on top of the ashes completely unscathed. It even still wore her black satin slipper. Okay. Nuts, am I right? So, this left me with a lot of questions. Has any skull shrunk at any other point in history Is this some type of like phenomenon that occurs when there's a fire? So in terms of skulls shrinking to due to fire, uh, Mary Reeser's case was the only one I was able to find. Then I looked into how one would actually shrink a skull and I would encourage you 
not to do that because it's literally probably the most disgusting thing I've ever done. <laughs> I think I'm probably on like a list now because <laughs> I looked it up. Um, and I found out that it oddly enough does not take very long to shrink a skull. Um, and the method is surprisingly and grossly simple and easy. So in order to shrink a skull to a third of its normal size, you just need to boil it for two hours. Yeah. That seems like dangerously too simple, if you ask me. Um, yeah, really, really weird. However, what makes this case even more bizarre, which I mean, I mean, this case is already pretty freaking bananas, is the condition of the remainder of the scene. According to cremation experts, Mary's body would have had to burn to a temperature of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit for three to four hours. However, in the surrounding areas around Mary's ashes and the apartment itself, it was like completely unaffected by the fire. Weird. The wall behind Mary's favorite chair was completely untouched. The ceiling above Mary did have um like dark soot caked on it but nothing that like a damp washcloth wouldn't get off um it didn't seem to be badly damaged there was even an outlet nearby that had melted but the outlets still worked um an electric clock in the room had stopped at 4 20 a.m but when it was plugged into another outlet it was working totally fine there were um, three candles on a nearby windowsill and the wax had melted, but the wicks of those candles remained untouched and they stood perfectly upright. Super weird. A stack of newspapers, which I mean, hello, flammable, were at the foot of the chair of Mary's favorite chair, the one that she was sitting in when she died. And those newspapers were also untouched. Mary's immediate neighbors who shared a wall with her, this is the, uh, the hotel room, um, they had not noticed anything at all. Like, they didn't smell anything, they didn't hear anything, they didn't notice any heat or anything. Local firefighters, however, who came to the scene found the fire to be unbearably hot, even with all of their gear on, but they could n find no evidence of smoldering. Chief Detective Cass Burgess found the case to be perplexing that's a quote by the way and to that i say yeah no duh detective burgess thanks a lot for your help uh dr wilton m krogman a professor of physical anthropology was amazed and baffled that he could not quote conceive such a complete cremation with without more burn to the apartment itself end quote Dr. Krogman also stated during his professional career, he had never encountered a skull shrinking due to the cremation of a body. Um, he said to the contrary, skulls usually swell and get bigger during intense heat and sometimes they even explode due to the pressure and the heat. Samples of the chair, rug, debris, and smoke were sent to the FBI for chemical analysis um, however, no combustibles were found, but the that fat was found in the samples of the rug. Yeah, human fat. Um, something that I thought was really interesting is that J. Edgar Hoover, did you guys ever watch that movie? Um, he was in charge of the FBI at that time, and he was a large part 
of this investigation. He made it like a personal mission to be involved in like each step of the case. So, I mean, it's not really a big part of this case, but I did think it was pretty cool. Um, All of this leads us to quite possibly the most bizarre aspect of the case. If there are no traces or signs of an accelerant in any of those samplings, then what was the cause of the fire? A local mattress factory who used the exact material in their mattresses as the stuffing in Mary's favorite chair claimed that the material would not allow a fire of that magnitude. They said that upon attempts to replicate the fire, all of their attempts were unsuccessful. The material simply smoldered for a long period of time, but it never reached 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, lightning or electrical failure was also considered, but it was uh, subsequently ruled out as a potential starter. It was reported that Mary had been seen earlier that evening smoking a cigarette in her favorite chair. That in mind, the FBI and police believe that it's possible the fire began when Mary fell asleep while smoking her cigarette. Which I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think anyone should be smoking a cigarette at bedtime right after they took two, possibly even four sedatives. After I had abdominal surgery, a doctor prescribed me some mild sedatives to help me recover. And I took half of one each day and I was like, peace out, out of there. So I can't even imagine a little old lady taking four. Consider this a public service announcement to any of you listening out there. Just in case you were wondering, just in case you were toying with the idea, uh, fire and sedatives, yeah, they don't really mix. So just say no and tell someone you know. (laughs) All that being said, though, um, while the cigarette theory is possible for the initial cause of the fire, it doesn't explain all of the other anomalies that we've discussed in the case. For starters, why were only Mary and the chair affected? How was her foot in the newspapers right by her feet not? And why was her skull so small? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, it was the conjecture of the police and the FBI at that time that Mary fell asleep while smoking a cigarette and that it landed on her nightgown, causing only her clothes to light on fire, something known as the wick effect. The official report states, once the body became ignited, almost complete destruction occurred from its own fatty tissues. Yuck. Um, Here are some alternative theories that are out there. The first theory is a little cuckoo, so buckle up. Detective Burgess, who we spoke about a little bit at the beginning, he's the one that said that this case was perplexing. Yeah, he's a real bright one. He was the one leading up this investigation. Um, Apparently, he received an anonymous letter stating, quote, a ball of fire came through an open window and hit her. I seen it happen. Mm, I don't think that's a credible source. (laughs) I know that you probably shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I seen it happen. I, I just don't believe you. Sorry. Next. The second theory is that the fire was intentionally set, either by thermite bombs, kerosene, magnesium, and phosphorus, or napalm. But the coroner assigned to the case said he didn't think those theories were plausible because all of those accelerants would have caused a distinct odor, which no one detected, and not all of the accelerant would have burned away, so that there would have been trace chemicals left behind and none were found. 
The final theory, or at least the final theory that the video I watched mentioned, I have my own theory that I'll get to next, is that Mary fell victim to a strange and rare phenomenon. Spontaneous human combustion. Allegedly, there have been roughly 200 recorded cases of spontaneous human combustion throughout history. So quite a few, not too weird. I mean, it's not a lot, but it's not like there's only been two. The earliest case of spontaneous combustion took place in 1470 in Italy when Planus Vostius burst into flames after a night of partying. Kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, last night was lit. Was that too much? Maybe. Too late. I already said it. I think Polonus might think it was funny. He seemed like a fun guy. If not, Polonus, if you're up there, please forgive me. Polonus's strange death was recorded two centuries later after being investigated by Thomas Bartholin, a famous mathematician and doctor. And I think I know who this doctor is. I think he's the guy that discovered and named the Bartholin's glands, right? It's got to be right. Bartholin is too common of a name. This is going to bug me. Now I have to look it up. Okay, so... (laughs) So Bartholin's glands are those glands in your hoo-ha that can get clogged sometimes. I remember that from female anatomy class in the third grade with Mrs. Dinkin. If you went to elementary school in Syracuse, New York, representing the SCSD, then you remember Mrs. Dinkin. (laughs) I remember one time my brother came home from school and he was shooketh we were like anthony what's wrong and he wouldn't tell me and he wouldn't tell my mom but after my dad came home and went upstairs and talked to him we uncovered the mystery apparently mrs dinkin had told the boys that they should get to know their bodies by examining and holding them (laughs) and my little third grade brother took from what she said he basically thought that it you know it could fall off and so he was like really concerned about that and it became this really big joke at my house so now you know a little Fairbank family insider joke okay so anyway no it looks like there were two Bartholin doctor dudes Casper Bartholin is the one who discovered the hoo-ha glands so my bad but you just learned something today so I'm not sorry (laughs) <laughs> in 1745, Countess Cornelia Bondi, also from Italy. What the heck is going on in Italy, man? Uh, she was found burnt to a pile of ashes with only her legs still intact. So there we go. Another case where legs were found to be unscathed. Very, very interesting. Skipping all the way to 1982, the family of Jean Safin of London, England. Okay, so not Italy, but pretty dang close. The family of Jean Safin supposedly saw her initially burst into flames. So that's different. Um, In 2010, a coroner claimed spontaneous human combustion to be the cause of death in the case of Michael Faraday in England. Europe, what is going on over there? Are you guys eating something? Is there something wonky in your water? What is going on? I don't know what it could be, but someone... Someone should look into that. (laughs) All right, so let's get into the science behind spontaneous human combustion. Essentially, it is the conversion of internal fluids that turn into gas. Then that gas causes the 
fat of the body to melt, burning the organs and the bones from the, ins- from the outside in. If you recall, fat was found in the rug of Mary Reeser's home. Some people think uh, spontaneous human combustion is impossible due to the human body being made up of almost 70% water. And while that's true, the body is made up of 70% water, there are things within our bodies that are highly flammable, such as body fat and methane gas. Layman terms, toots. Here are some commonalities discovered between the 200 reported cases of human combustion that we can study today. All right, so apparently static electricity, bacterial infections, stress, obesity, and alcohol consumption are all um, like potential causes uh, that people have noted in all of the 200 cases. So some scientists even believe that human cells could mutate under very specific circumstances like literally the planets have to align and that could cause the cells to suddenly ignite yikes kind of makes you want to get rid of your carpet lose weight do some yoga and get off the gin and juice am i right in a recent issue of new scientist magazine biologist brian j ford wrote that a large concentration of acetate in the body may contribute to spontaneous human combustion Acetone buildup could result from alcohol consumption, variations in diet, and diabetes. Cases of spontaneous human combustion usually meet three requirements. The first one is that the surroundings um, around the person are not damaged. Number two, that there's no visible source or cause of the fire. Number three, parts of the body, there are parts of the body that are left behind untouched. All three of these requirements, I guess, occurred in Mary's case. Another thing to know is that Mary did not seem to escape her fate. Um, Like, there were no signs that Mary knew that she was on fire and attempted to get away. This would make sense if she truly was the victim of human spontaneous combustion. But... It could also be that she was just so out of it after taking four sedatives that she literally couldn't even wake up. I think the only thing I can think of is by the time they're already on fire, someone that's ex- that's like truly experiencing spontaneous human combustion, by the time that they're already on fire, since they'd be burning from the inside out, by that time, I'd assume that they're already dead, which... I don't know if that makes it easier to cope with or harder to cope with. Some people wondered if the sedatives would really be that strong as to prevent Mary from waking up when her clothes had caught on fire from a stray cigarette. And to that I say, well, yeah, I mean, if the sedatives are used for surgery when you're literally being cut into then yeah, I think they're probably strong enough to keep you out when you're on fire, especially since she didn't just take one. She took four. But it still doesn't explain the shrunken skull. What I thought was strange about this short documentary I watched um, is that they didn't really seem to look into the Dr. Sun Man at all, who had been with Mary shortly before her death. What I learned through a little bit of my couch potato digging uh, was an article. I found all this information from an article on deadhistory.com. Super interesting. 
Uh, apparently, the night before Mary's death, she had come home from her son's home looking visibly upset. Uh, Dr. Reeser's wife even showed up a little bit later and stayed for a few hours to comfort her and console her. The next day, Pansy, the landlady, noted that Dr. Reeser came over, but he only stayed for a few minutes, which was really unusual. Normally, Mary's day seemed to revolve around her son, Dr. Richard. She would have morning coffee with him every day at 10 o'clock in the morning. Then her son would leave for work, and then he paid Mary to, like, run errands for him. At 4.30, he would stop by his mom's house and he'd pick her up and they'd have dinner together at his home with his wife and kids, but not this day. This day, he only visited her right before she went to bed and he only stayed for five to ten minutes. Pansy went to check on her and Mary said that she was a little upset and that she had taken two secondal tablets and that she was planning on taking two more a little bit later. Pansy believed that Mary was upset over some type of family quarrel, but that she also seemed particularly stressed about an upcoming trip to Pennsylvania. Did Dr. Richard have, like, a ironclad, rock-solid alibi? If he did, they didn't even talk about it. They didn't really give any reason as to why he wouldn't have been thought to be responsible, which I thought was kind of weird, because typically when someone dies, the people closest to them, either in a, like, relationally or proximity-wise, are looked into quite heavily. I mean, Dr. Richard was with her. He was probably one of the last people to see her alive. He gave her this prescription sedative medication from which I could surmise she didn't even really need. Did he stand to like inherit anything if she passed away, like an inheritance or some kind? I don't even know how their relationship was. Like, was it strained? I don't know. I think if I were Detective Burgess on the case, I'd be like, uh, you, weird doctor son, what were you doing on July 2nd, 1951 after you supposedly left your mom's house? Is it possible that with Dr. Richard's background in medicine, he somehow found a way to mimic the appearance of spontaneous human combustion? Also, considering what we now know about shrinking human skulls, which I'm pretty sure is something you did not wake up thinking that you'd learn more about today, uh, it can be done pretty quickly. I don't know. I have no proof. Just my little conspiracy theories. Also, that telegram that I mentioned earlier, I was able to find out from that deadhistory.com article um, that it was from a friend in Pennsylvania letting Mary know not to stress out about her Pennsylvania trip as they had already made arrangements for her and they had just gone ahead and paid for it for her. So that uncovers that mystery. Um, I was able to find Dr. Richard's obituary. Um, he apparently died in 2005. So I'll link it in the show notes if you're interested. Um, it seems like he may have escaped the rumors of potentially being involved. Or maybe he never, maybe there never were rumors because I didn't even see anything, any rumor. Um, as the article didn't even mention, like, his mom at all. Uh, but I know it's him because how many other doctor researchers who study internal medicine could there be in St. Petersburg? And he was 88 years old, so it lines up with our timeline. What I think is not cool is that as the story of Mary Research traveled across the globe, she began to be referred to as the Cinder Woman, which 
seriously, not cool. She seemed like a sweet little old lady. And then for people to come up with a name like that to be her legacy just doesn't seem very nice to me. No, I don't like it. I don't like it one little bit. Leave Mary alone. She's just a sweet little grandma. There's no definitive answer as to what happened to Mary Reeser. Did she accidentally light herself on fire with her cigarette as she slept? Or was she truly a victim of spontaneous combustion? What do you guys think about this case? What do you think happened to Mary Reeser that night? Did she just fall asleep and her cigarette lit her on fire? Do you think that she was the victim of homicide? Do you think a big ball of fire uh, came through her window and landed on her lap like that dumb letter suggested? How is it that the apartment was completely untouched? And how did her skull shrink? These are the questions I want to know the answer to. Please let me know by commenting on the recent post that I just made on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. And as always, don't forget to join me next week when together we'll discover did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>